Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is September the 14th. It is a Monday. This is episode 2730 of the Survival Podcast. As is typical on Monday, we are going to have a listener feedback show. This is where I respond to you guys, sometimes through email, sometimes things in social media, and sometimes things that I have just noticed kind of being kicked around. So that's what we're going to do today. Here's what I've got for you today. i got a new video I did about tomorrow's episode and how you can contribute to that one as well, making a Just Jack show into somewhat of a listener feedback episode. tell you about that in a minute. Nicole Sauce's new Kickstarter is kicking ass, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that and how you can learn more about how you can help out Nicole with Holler Roast's new Kickstarter. Uh, next, i got a video that I wanted to mention. This is one that came from social media. I saw this this morning on Parler. Uh, it basically says all COVID commercials are the same, and this is from May, so the only thing missing in these commercials is the virtue signaling mask. They, they, they haven't really changed. I have a link where you can watch the commercial if, uh, or the video if you want to. I want to talk about a little bit of a larger implication, that we have all these commercials that are so identical. And I, I think if you watch this video, it'll really drive home the points that I'm going to make. And I want to point out that the maker of this video has an entire channel based on it's all the same. You know, every reality TV show is the same. And, and, and just about anything you can go into, you know... Every drug commercial is the same. Every fill-in-the-blank is the same. It's exactly the same. It's all formulaic. And I want to talk about not just the lack of intelligence when you go to a cookie-cutter lifestyle, but why this is the case and, and what it really means on a much bigger level. Uh, i got a question on getting rid of sandburrs. It's easier than you think, but it's harder than you want it to be, I guess is the way I'll put that. More on uh, city exits and the bargaining phase. I got an article in this segment where uh, major uh, employers and landlords, etc., are uh, begging the giant financial corporations, please, please bring your people back to the office, please. We need you two to save the city, New York City in, in this case. Um, <clears throat> how long can an anchor charger hold its charge? Well, it depends. Another tip for fighting the evil spawn known as the squash vine borer, also known as SVB. If uh, if you hate squash vine borers and you've done any amount of work to figure out how to defeat them online, you probably know the term SVB. That's how, how they're referred to, and it's uh, it's something that uh, that is difficult to deal with. But I've got another way, and it, this way does work. It doesn't work for me, but it may work for you. Uh, what I've learned about Kratky hydroponics and what that would change in my hydroponics efforts in the future, it's what it's already changed, really. And uh, this might be a whole show, uh, uh, lessons from one year of hydroponics growing, maybe closer toward the end of the year. But I'll give you a little bit of an overview on the, the, the very uh, basics of it today. The good and the bad of grow bags. How long do they last? Once again, it depends. And uh, the concept of rolling quarantines in the parallel to rolling blackouts. And is global co cooling coming? Well, possibly, and a TSP blast from the past. Um, I have an episode from 2009 that I'll mention when we handle this segment. Before we get into all this good stuff, though, let's start out with a uh, 
quote of the day. This one from Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee once said, I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Uh, that makes me think of another quote. I think it was Clint Smith once said, Beware the man who carries only one gun. He probably knows how to use it. Um, both of those are really talking about the same thing. And I, I've seen bloggers and video makers jump on the Beware the man that carries one gun quote with, Well, that's not exactly true because you see different guns do different... Yeah, way to miss the point there, Dexter. Um, yeah, what this quote is about, and what the gun quote is about is that while it is good to be a generalist, it's also good to be really, really good at a few things. And that when we take that one thing and we truly perfect it, we are able to use it at a level that most people find phenomenal, but more importantly, we're able to do it with ease. It's almost without thought. We develop either that muscle or mental memory to the capacity where it's just a thing. And I think we've all witnessed this in, in, in people, where you see them do something that looks just like, oh my God, how could a human even do that? But the person does it with such ease as though it's just a natural thing for a human to do. Like you, you almost can imagine like if some alien species who didn't have that ability came to Earth and they were looking at humans and they saw a human perform some sort of physical feat like this, almost thinking, well, that's what humans do. Like, that's an innate human characteristic. Humans are able to, you know, like if you think about like some of the uh, the uh, Arabic people that do like the things where like one dude holds another dude up in a handstand and they like balance on swords or something like that. And when they do it, they do it with such ease. Well, it comes from that repetition. And, and the real lesson in that is that whatever we do a lot, we get better at. And you don't even have to do it to that level. You don't have to become so proficient that you stand head and shoulders above the average person in something. It's not only what you specialize in. It's anything that you do over and over and over and over again, you get really good at. If you get up and do a podcast every day, no matter how limited your ability to be a podcaster is, you'll get better and you'll get good. You see how that works? If you, if you work on how to manage money your whole life, you'll get good at managing money. If you get, if you work on how to earn money your whole life, you'll get good at earning money. Even if you're like me and you don't have any natural musical talent, if you, if I really wanted to, I could become a decent guitar player. Maybe I could never become a truly gifted one, but I could become good at it. If you play video games all the time, you'll get really, really good at the video games that you play, and you'll get a general ability at playing video games and the dexterity of your fingers and the ability of the mind to work with a controller. If you spend most of your time debating people, you'll get good at debating people, but if you spend most of your time in debates that are pointless, you'll get good at pointless debate. See how the sword cuts both ways. If you spend most of your time doing things that don't benefit your life, you'll get really good at doing things that don't benefit your life. But if you spend most of your time doing things that are beneficial to your life, not only will each action help make your life a little better, but each action will make you a little bit better at making your life a little bit better. I fear not the man who has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 
10,000 times, Bruce Lee. Um, next up, real quick, I did a video today about tomorrow's episode, and I'll let you watch it if you want to, but here's the, the, the summation of it in you know, 30 seconds. While I am anti-political, assuming I am wrong, and politics makes the difference you think it makes, it's as important as you think it is if you think politics is important. In fact, it's twice as important as the average person thinks it is. It is still the case that when it comes to your individual life, how much freedom and liberty you have in your life is still more based on your individual actions every day other than Election Day than it is on that one day. That even though I'm totally wrong, I'm totally wrong, and the Orange Man really is, uh, the Q people are right, and the Orange Man is really going to save us all, and he's playing 7D Chess Man, and all of it's true, or any way you want to come at it. My, my contention is still that what you do in your own backyard and where you choose for that backyard to be has more impact on your individual liberty than any politician ever could. How you learn to practice and execute state-level jiu-jitsu is more important than what the state does. In other words, how you respond to your opponent is more important than your opponent. That's my summation in this. So what the video calls for, and you don't have to watch it to participate, send me an email. you got to do it today, though, or early tomorrow. TSPC Freedom in it, in the subject line, I'm sorry. And tell me things that you have done or you believe people can do to have more liberty and freedom in their lifetime. Obviously, there's things that we'll talk about, like growing food, getting your kids out of the government health care system or the government school system. Um, we'll talk about entrepreneurship, working the tax code, but anything you can come up with. Because what I've noticed is over the years, I've, I've gotten so many emails from so many people, and so much feedback in so many ways. My life is better because, and usually because they're talking to me, it ties into something with TSP. But whatever they do, it's like, well, maybe you discovered that or felt encouraged in that because of the TSP communities. But you could have, that could have come from somewhere else. This is a thing unto itself. And this is based on that fundamental truth that no matter where you are in geography or when you are in history, the thing that has the greatest impact on your individual liberty is the decisions and choices you make in your life. So anything you think you have that might contribute to that, send it to me, Jack at the Survival Podcast.com, TSPC Liberty in the subject line, or TSPC Freedom. I don't remember which one I said on the video. It doesn't matter. I'll figure it out. Send that to me and get it to me today. Anyway, next up, um, Nicole Sauce has launched a new Kickstarter. Her coffee roaster caught on fire. She's still working with it on a get-by mode. Uh, she wanted to raise about $10,000 to buy a new roaster. She's pre-selling coffee. She's not asking for donations. She's, she's just basically doing some pre-sells, and she set up a new portal where people can order coffee whenever they want. And it's really, really cool. You can learn all about it in the write-up that I put on the blog today. Um, here's the good news. She's already there. She pre-launched it Thursday, kind of soft-launched through the weekend, and I had planned to put this out for her today. And, um, well, and she already hit her 10 grand. She already hit her 10 grand, which is great because that means you know if you back it now, you got no worries, right? You know that you're going to be able to uh, partake in whatever uh, level of coffee you pre-buy. Nicole's awesome, and she's done so much for this community. It would mean a lot to me if you'd consider, you know, just basically pre-buy some of your coffee for the next year. And at the same time, help her build even better. Because 
she's already got some stretch goals out, and this is what I know about Nicole. And it's what I know about many members of this community that I've backed on things before. She's a good investment. She's a good investment. If, if you've gained from her work and her efforts, consider, you know, participating at some level in this to return a bit of a dividend back. Because she's going to make good on this investment. She'll have a better product with greater availability and do more. And you know the other thing about Nicole. She's a good investment because she pays dividends back. So sometimes you kick a dividend in and you get a better dividend back. And what I mean by that is the more success she has, the more she does to help people in her other endeavors. And she's done a lot with that. So consider checking out the Kickstarter And uh, if you just want to go straight to her Kickstarter and uh, pick out a package you can participate in, you can find the website at kickstarthollerroast.com. Kickstarthollerroast.com. Next up, there's a video that I saw this morning that's like the same thing all over again about the same thing all over again because I've seen so many instances of this. But it says basically that every single commercial for COVID is the same. You know, it's like starts with somber music. And it goes through about 20 different brands and shows their music, right? And then like rising images. And it shows the same kind of like camera angle that starts low and raises up and, you know, ends with clapping. And we were there for you. We're there for you. Like everybody's saying the same thing, maybe phrased a little bit differently, but very, I mean, when I say phrased differently, I, I don't mean by much. And it goes through the whole thing and it ends. And I watched this and I was like, but there's one thing missing. The virtue signal mask, the surgical mask, the stupid person in a car driving with a mask, like the little kid coming out and jumping down the stairs and putting her mask on as soon as she leaves her own house for no good reason. And then I looked at the date on the on the video, and it was from May. So it was before masks were vital, and we weren't supposed to wear Remember, we weren't like that. But like if, if this producer made this video again today, it would, you could add the little you know virtue signaling mask phase to it, and it otherwise would pretty much be the same that it's ever been. I mean, really, go to the notes. Even if you're a person, you know, like most people do not go to the website very often. Most people, they listen to the show. You guys just listen through, you know, iTunes or Stitcher or, or you know, Last FM or, or whatever it is, right? Um, but man, go go pull up episode twenty seven thirty today, and you'll see on this bullet point, it'll say a video about how all COVID commercials are the same and the larger reality to it, and it'll say the video is here, and you can click on it. Take a look at it. It should actually be more disturbing than I think it is to most people. I think most people look at it and they find it humorous. And you can see humor in it. But I've spoken to this before, this pattern recognition. What else is all the same? I mean, again, this, this producer, this video producer, has a whole channel based on this idea, this premise. They have a formula of just taking everything that the media makes all the same and making a video about it to show that it's true. How about drug commercials? Every drug commercial shows happy people frolicking through life, even if they have, like, stage 4 lymphoma. Because that's what people with stage 4 lymphoma do. They frolic through life, right? Um, all of them are, you know, have people in front of mirrors getting ready to go out and about. And uh, all of them uh, use a, a repurposed 70s to early 90s jingle, right? Every drug is named something stupid, but it's designed to either invoke curing the illness or something you can trust, like 
entresto, right? Right? I mean, like, it's all exactly the same. Turn on the media, the news, local news, right? Your local Dallas-Fort Worth affiliate, blah, 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 blah. From Tallahassee, from Miami, from Philadelphia, from Los Angeles, your own backyard. And yet, 90% of the content that you hear will read verbatim the same. In fact, you can tell the person is reading the same script, and any variation is just that this person adds or takes a word out because of their personality. <laughs> At this point, I think if you don't see this pattern recognition, if you don't recognize within it what we call finorts, which are pieces of disinformation in plain sight, you either do not wish to or you're incapable of seeing it. And I'm not sure which one it is yet. Because it's become so blatant. At least, you know, 12 years ago when I started this show... I had to work a little bit to expose this. Today, I don't even have to. Today, it's like, oh, and I don't think it's just that I got better at seeing it myself because I was pretty good at seeing it back then. I think that it's gotten to be that as they've dumbed down the population, they've actually had to increase the stupidity for it to remain effective. So it, it went from we have to sort of subtly hide it and do, do this subliminal thing to the point where, like, well, we don't really have to hide it anymore, to, hey, let's just see how blatant we can be and get away with it, to, holy shit, they're so, they're so drugged out now. Basi basically, actual real drugging and food drugging, but also informational drugging. Like, we, we have to go to this dumb, ridiculous level. We have to do that in order for it even to work still. Because people that have woken up to it see it anyway. To where it's, it's so beyond obvious that it should make you concerned for your fellow American that doesn't see it. Like, how, how brain dead do you have to be to not notice this? And clearly it's effective or they wouldn't do it, but you, won't, you know what it all goes back to? And I said this in, in 2008 when I started the show. I, I talked about this. You know, I was heavily involved in marketing at the time. That was my profession. And um, I, I got pushback on this when I said it. I said about 2003, 2004, there were meetings of like all what I call the Madison Avenue marketing firms. Now, not all Madison Avenue marketing firms are on Madison Avenue. Madison Avenue marketing firm is a colloquialism for the big marketing firms, the giant ones. The, the firms that are big enough that a brand like General Motors Right? Or a brand like General Electric, or a brand like Subaru, or a brand like John Deere. You know, a multi-billion dollar brand would go to them and say, hey, help us. That's what a Madison Avenue marketing firm is. <sighs> That all of them kind of got together, even though they're competitors, and they made an agreement. And they made an agreement that they would drop all marketing to the eighth grade and below level. And when I said that, people were like, Dah. I thought you said you weren't a conspiracy tinfoil hat type guy. Jack, what kind of, do, do you doubt me now? I mean, go back over the last 12 years and look at the way that marketing has been put out. Look at the way they're doing this. There's nothing sophisticated in any messaging when it comes to marketing anything from cars to cell phones. And it's just, and it's the same thing over and over. Like every car lets you now go someplace. You can now go camping. 
Why? Because I bought a Subaru Outback. Now I can go camping. My Ford truck was incapable of this. But now I can go camping. Now I can stick my hand out and do the airplane thing that we've been doing for as long as there's been cars and windows. Now I can do it. Right? Now all my friends can get together. Right? Come on. And it, if you look at the political messaging, it's all at the eighth grade level. Both both sides of the media. You go to mainstream media, you have kind of the people that are for the right, and you got the majority that are for the left. And both of them are completely intellectually dishonest about the reality. The left's message now, trying to defeat the orange man, is what? All these people died of COVID because of Trump. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Trump's not responsible for COVID. Well, he didn't respond. How would you prefer that he had responded compared to what he did? Lock down harder and destroy the economy worse? And do you really think that would have prevented us from having the amount of COVID that we've had? Look at, this, look at the countries that locked down tighter than a monkey's butthole. Like Italy. Like France. Like Portugal. Like the United Kingdom. They have the same type of curve and the same type of problems that we did here. If you look at the states in this country that did the tightest lockdowns, in general, they have the worst results. Like, this is asinine. This is not defense of Trump. This is just asinine. You're going to blame a president for a virus? He misled people. And what difference did it make? People died because of him. How? Explain how. They can't. They can't. Can't do it. But then you have a president that's out that is a centrist populist Democrat, that's what Trump is. He's a centrist populist Democrat with a few conservative positions, defended as the, as the reincarnation of Ronald Reagan, which is kind of true since he was also a centrist populist Democrat. But anyway, I digress. I digress. Like, neither side is completely, is even remotely intellectually honest. And that means that you can literally trust nothing. And yet people put so much faith and so much so much into what comes out of the idiot box. We call it the idiot box, and then we turn it on every day, and we are glued to it on one level or another. I mean, the, the, the real implication here is that you are, and your family is, and America is, and the modern world is being programmed Everything that you're being told is running through a very small filter that is designed to make you, one, pick a side, two, defend that side, three, ignore any information contrary to your predisposed beliefs. And it's all being done very scientifically. That's conspiracy theory. It's not conspiracy when it's obvious. Conspiracy is something done by a very few people. This is being done by the mass market. They've been sold on the idea of being a good idea. Let me try, trust me, the person that did the commercial for the car company, that it looks exactly like the commercial for the the for Amazon, that looks like exactly the commercial for the real estate company, that looks exactly like the commercial for freaking Walmart, that looks exactly like the commercial for a radio station, that looks exactly like a commercial for a cell phone manufacturer, they all think it's their idea. They all think it's their idea, and they all think it's brilliant. Because they've all been so programmed over so many generations now that, this, that it's, it's easy to manipulate them.
And it's easy to manipulate the consumer. I mean, really watch the video. Watch the video. And before you do, this is my, my hope that you would do with this video. Sit down. Pull it up on your phone or your computer. And before you hit play, take three deep breaths. And say to yourself, self, I'm going to let go of all of my preconceived beliefs and concepts about this subject. And I'm going to watch this as though I was dropped into earth from some alien world. And this was something to inform me about the species I was evaluating on another planet. Take three more deep breaths and turn it on. And then you tell me what you would think about that population. Especially when you realized how effective that was as a form of advertising in their culture. That is the danger of the world that we're in now. Next up, I was asked how to get rid of sandburrs. So Jason asked me this one. He said, besides Roundup and Prowl, what recommendations do you have for sandburr control and elimination? Jason, like many people in the audience, you've been to uh, my property. And you know that my sandburr problem is... Uh, Legendary. There's actually people who have posted pictures of their camping gear from, you know, several years before from TSP workshops that still have sandburrs in it. Like, I just dug this out today, and does anybody else still have sandburrs? I think Jessica Mills did that one time. Like, I got sandburrs in these socks that I found in the bottom of a bag from two months ago. You know, is anybody else still carrying sandburrs from Jack Spirko's place around? And uh, I think what you'll find... Much to your happiness, if you come to this workshop, which sold out in like five minutes this time, um, hardly any. There's hardly any sandbars, sandbars left on my property. There's a few here and there. You'll find some here and there, but there's very few. Why? I did nothing except improve fertility. Sandbars are a pioneering species that grow in nutrient-deficient soils. They do not grow in rich, fertile soils, at least not in large numbers. They just don't. If you think about where you find sandburrs, like the place that's sandburr hell in Texas, go to the beach and go up to where the dunes are, go just past the dune grasses, and just on the other side of the dune grasses, right, when you're going just from sand to soil, you'll find sandburrs. And if you're walking barefoot on the beach and you're not somewhere where there's a board rock or whatever and you you you, you, you make the mistake of walking up there, you end up with sandbars just like caked in your feet and then pulling them out is worse than when they go in. Well, how fertile do you think that soil is? It's non-existent as soil. So the, the, the best practice for eliminating sandbars is developing nutrient uh, rich soils. And the best way to do that, if you can, on large land is through smart grazing practices. And if you can't graze, then you need to use other organic methods. And I, I would go deeper into it, but that's that's it. There's no reason to beat that one up any further. Like You can either use the chemical approach and all of the problems that comes comes from doing so, or you can use the approach of improving soil fertility and get all of the gains that comes along with it because that's that's the solution to it and that's it's been done right here and i know the place that we had the most of them it's a spot straight out my backyard and it's right in between 
kind of the, the center of the backyard and where I built the first, or not the first, but the, uh, the 300-gallon aquaponics system. It's kind of right. Anybody that's ever walked through there just knows that was like no man's land. And I was just out there this morning walking around. There's, there's none. We just had a big rainfall, too, where you know things kind of spruce up and get, nope, there's none, zero. Because I had looked at this question already. That's the way. Improve the fertility of the soil and they will go away. They just, that's their role. Their role is to grow where other things can't. Let's take another one. So back to my call to get out of the cities. Uh, again, I, I really hope that people understand that that are new to the podcast that this is not new. I've been saying to do this for a very long time, and I'm ramping it up, yes, because of violence, but not only because of violence. And it, it's really important that you understand that. Let me read a little bit of this article on Bloomberg for you today. The skyscrapers are mostly empty. The tourists are home, and talk of New York's decay is back. For the city's real estate barons, it's time to put an end to it. A loose coalition of New York's top property owners and managers is busily working on the phones, pressuring many of the city's biggest employers, including powerhouses like Goldman Sachs, Blackstone, and BlackRock, to speed up the return of workers. Their argument, it's safe, and the eateries and shops that make Manhattan special can't hold out much longer. Some are calling it the patriotic thing to do. It would certainly help hard-pressed landlords. Okay, the rest of it you can read all you wish. Title of the article is New York Landlords Press Finance Bosses to Speed Up Return to Work and Save the City. They want to save the city. Now, you do realize that the vast majority of these people that come to work every day in the middle of New York City and do these jobs in finance, first of all, what they do is generally parasitic. It's generally parasitic. It's generous, generally harvesting the stock market for money without providing any value add to the market in the name of their value add being liquidity. Other, in other words, when you want to sell a stock, you're able to sell it because of their things that they do with like high frequency, high frequency trades and stuff like that. As though it would not be possible for you to sell your thousand shares of Ford Motor Company and get your money out of the stock market without them. As though it was ever the case that that was a problem before they existed. And it, and it wasn't for those with a shorter memory or haven't been around for more than, you know, a few decades. But number two, these people are doing their jobs right now. They're all doing their jobs. They didn't, like, they're not all sitting at home collecting unemployment checks with their thumb up their ass. That's not what they're doing. They're all doing their jobs right now. They're doing their jobs the same way they've always done their jobs. Do you understand what that means? That means these firms do not require expensive New York City real estate to function. There is so much legacy right now, and, it, and when you have a shift, and that's what I've been calling all of this. For years I've been talking about this shift between 2020 and 2030, and I've been saying all this year, all COVID did was accelerate this shift, right? or I should say shifts. It's like I don't like the word the system. I say the systems. It's not a shift. It's the shifts. I guess you can look at all the shifts together as a mega shift, right? But... When you have major shifts, a lot of stuff that's held on due to legacy and tradition dies really, really fast. And what I mean by that is, in 1975, it was very important for a company like, let's say, Goldman Sachs or Bear Stearns, when they were still around, right, to have 
people, and not just people, but lots and lots of people in New York City, right on Wall Street, right inside the market, trading in the market. It's you could you could shut Wall Street down as a thing tomorrow, and everything would still function. We still have people running around like taking trades manually to a degree, and, and, and things like that going on down there. Well, it's not necessary. It's literally an industry that still has a tremendous amount of money sucked out of it by tradition. And then the vicarious thing is all those shops and restaurants and everything, all those people that go work there every day, that that have no, you know, that have an uptown, you know, um, apartment with no room in it, so they have no food in their house, so they eat three meals out a day, et cetera. They're all they're all fueling tremendous numbers of adjacent industries. This all this whole complex of these mega cities was built on a legacy time, and that legacy has been dead for two decades. When I was doing cabling work in the 90s, one of the jobs that I did, I got a call. This is back when I was in sales for cabling. This is around 98, 97. Big, big cabling job, supposedly. I get the address, and it doesn't seem like the right kind of address. I expect to be going to some high-rise building or something. And I'm on kind of this older neighborhood in, in Dallas. Really cool-looking neighborhood. Big old oak trees and maple trees and stuff like that. And, I come, and there's this huge house. Huge old house, probably 100 years old. Like three stories. That's it. Like there's not a lot of three-story houses in, in Dallas-Fort Worth. And there's a guy sitting there on the porch, and I think this must be a mistake. But I pull over. He goes, are you Jack? I said, yeah. He says, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm Bill. Or, I can't remember his name this many years ago. So really, this is where the cabling works? Yeah, yeah, we need lots of cabling. Now, my version of big cabling job and his version were different, but it was a significant amount of cabling. And it was actually very profitable because it was like, okay, you understand that this is not a commercial building. Yes, we do. And you understand that you're a tenant in this building, and whatever we put in the walls or whatever has to look nice because your landlord is not, like, we're not, we don't want to be in that media. Yeah, we understand. So, like, we're going to have to rip that crown molding down and what have you. And we don't do crown molding. So, like, if you don't want to do this yourself, I'm going to have to get subcontractors. I'm going to put 20% on everything. And then I'm going to add 10% to cover my ass. I don't care. Just tell me how much. And if it's a problem, I'll tell you. Well, okay, so I do the whole thing. I go sit down with him with everything he thinks he wants. I do a design that's a little bit better. And I see, you know, I'll get back to you, and I come back to him, and it was like $65,000 worth of cabling in a house. He's like, do it. Uh, no. <laughs> um, no. Uh, we're we're, we're going to need 50% down, at least. And we're going to have to get you set up with a credit app and all that. He goes, I'll just pay you in advance. Well, my response to that with a client is always like, we'll say more things like that. So... Since he was willing to, he paid in full in advance. And we went in, we knocked the job out for him. And of course, as you're doing this, you're, you're, what are you doing? Day trading. They were bringing together all of these different experts to do day trading. And they were using this old house in Dallas because they thought it was really cool and it was kind of a perk and it would bring people in and they could live. Like, that's like 97, 98. What they were doing there 
would have required multiple seats on the exchange, physical seats on the exchange, ten years before that. I remember in the 80s my dad making trades on stocks with his broker, and he would call him and tell him what he wanted. It might take a day to execute that trade. I remember him sitting down with these books and doing technical analysis with these books that were already weeks old when the data came out. There's nothing that we need. And here's the thing. It's not about Wall Street. It's about all of it. Anything that's technically based, that doesn't require putting a widget in a bag and handing it to somebody, anything that can be done digitally no longer requires expensive real estate, no longer requires people on site, and that's been the case for years, and now it's all come home to roost. And now they're bargaining. Oh, it's the patriot. Patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel. You've got bargaining. You've got landlords begging these firms to bring people back when what these firms are likely to start doing, at least on some level, is we don't need this floor of this building anymore. I can't remember who it was. But I just some large. It wasn't real. It wasn't you know like uh, investing. It was some big firm. I think it was Pinterest. Yeah, it was Pinterest. Pinterest just paid eighty nine point five million dollars to their landlord to terminate their lease. It was it was such that it was better to give them almost ninety million dollars than to stay put. These cities. These big cities are built on this, this, this concept that to be where the talent is, you have to be in this place. Not understanding that the talent can now exist anywhere in the world and do its talented work. And guys, it's, it is, how do I explain this? It is going to be the case as, as it has always been. That we are going to go from denial to, well, everybody knows. everybody and, and pretending that they all were saying it the whole time. And it's going to happen much more quickly than it originally was going to happen. The place that I saw us being in, by somewhere between 2024 and 2026, I see us being in before this time next year. That's how much acceleration there is. And uh, I, I will say this, even then there will still be a lot of denial. A lot of denial, anger, and bargaining. But we will really, at that point, enter the depression portion of the cycle. And I mean that both economically and psychologically. A lot of these people that have based their entire belief system on this concept of you got to be in Manhattan, you got to be in San Francisco, you got to be in Seattle. A lot of companies that have... And, 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 and you know, supposed experts and industry specialists, etc., that have based everything in their life for decades around this concept are going to be in a real state of depression by this time next year. And the only thing that comes after depression, and that's that's called the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, is acceptance. It's the same process people go through when they get a cancer diagnosis that's terminal. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And it's interesting, once you understand that thing, you can look at any sector within any industry right now that's, that's going to have massive flux or completely go away. And you'd be like, oh, they're in the anger phase. Oh, they're in the bargaining phase. Oh, they're in the denial phase. See, in this, 
You've got denial. The people that aren't part of it at all are in denial. But the people who actually are being hurt the worst, the landlords, and the ones that are doing the financial forecast of doomsday for themselves, they've jumped past anger. They went right from denial to bargaining. They, because they were num the landlords are numbers people. They have accountants, like Joe Walsh, I have accountants that pay for it all. Well, they have accountants that tell them what's going to happen. And they said, hey, give us a, a, a cash burn capital analysis on this. What's our capital burn on this? What's our burn rate? When do we go insolvent here? When does this all fall apart? And even if we get bailed out, when do we hit a point where it doesn't matter that we've been bailed out because we have an empty building that's not going to fill back up? And the accountants went, yeah, here. Yeah, we counted the beans, and you're not going to like this. Because a lot of those beans are really, you know, have been eaten by weevils at this point, and you're screwed. So they've gone right to the bar. Hey, if you guys, if you just, if you just bring them back, and let me tell you something about these guys. They're not stupid. They're planning their own exit. This bargaining isn't to make it go away. This bargaining is to buy them time to exit their debt positions. Does that mean Manhattan will disappear? No. It means it will not be what it was ever again. It won't. It won't. Because there's no re. See, the thing is, this is what nobody's getting. There's no reason for a New York City anymore. And when I say that, I don't mean for a place called New York City to exist. I mean for New York City to exist as it's existed for over 100 years where it was a place you had to be, you had to have an office, you had to visit, you had to go see it, you had to have a presence there, and you had to physically be there. When you have a city that big, that's been built under that pretense for this long, and its population declines by 10 to 15%, it's, it's, it's devastating in a way that's almost impossible to fix. This is what's, this is, this is, let's look at, look at it this way. What does, the next New York City look like as it actually gets better. It looks like being able to buy two of these tiny-ass apartments right next to each other and rip the wall down that separates them and make it into a, a normal-sized living space. That's what it looks like. And if you want to live in New York City, I suggest waiting a couple of years, and you'll have an opportunity to do just that. Otherwise, get the hell out. Next up, Chris has a question. Chris in Indiana has a question on anchor charges. He says, I've heard you mention anchor charges a few times as the item of the day. How long can one of those sit before you want to top it off? I have a storm shelter. I'd like to keep one in, but I'd hate to need it and have the charge deplete over time. Thanks, Chris. Okay, so the answer is it depends. And these are based on lithium-ion batteries, the anchor chargers. They're one of the better chargers available on the market. Um, I keep waiting for the point where I come out to you and go, hey, you know what? I know I've, I've, I've recommended the Anchor Chargers for X number of years. And here's their new version, or here's somebody else's new version, and this is now a big, you know, newer technology, better. For the money, they're the best thing on the market. When you look at storage capacity, longevity, reliability, the company standing behind it, if you get a bad one, they're going to just replace it, that type of thing. There's nothing has come up and, and beat them yet. So they're a very high-quality item. They have... The odds are you could take one and stick it on a shelf somewhere, and if you weren't in extreme temperatures or, or what have you, it would have a significant amount of charge in it two years from now. It wouldn't be full. And the truth is 
the reserve begins to dissipate the second you stop popping it off. Okay? But they last longer than all the old technology ever did. But a best practice, because they use an intelligent charging technology, is if you're not using it, and it's somewhere that it can be plugged in, leave it plugged in. So if you have a storm shelter, my, 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 my thought would be you probably have power down there. And if you do, it should be plugged in there. If you don't, it's probably not where I would keep backup power like that. I would, I would probably keep something like a bag and have it set up to where something like your, your charger sitting on top of it or somewhere where it's ready to go where it's plugged in and you can grab the bag, throw the charger in and head down. That, that's, that's probably more what I would do there. And then, you know, because storm shelter, okay, so is it a place that gets really hot or is it underground and it's a place that's like nice and cool? Humidity, heat, etc. all these things have an impact on this. But if you had no choice, and you said, Jack, look, I just need to take this thing, put this in my storm shelter, and leave it there. I want one of them there. Then I would probably, every 60 days minimum, bring it out, top it up, and I would probably use it. I would probably dump some power out of it into a device and then charge it back up. What I do with mine, I keep it in my car, and I keep it plugged in. That's where I keep I keep one on the counter, and I keep one in the car, and I keep one in the other car. And that way I always have one where I can grab and go with it. That's, that's, that's my approach to it. Um, let's take another one. Gordon gives us some advice on the evil Satan spawn known as the squash vine borers. He says, if I can, I want to give back a little in the form of some advice on the cursed squash vine borer, which I just heard you mention on the podcast. I'm in New York, and I've been fighting these bastards since I started vegetable gardening at 15, and I'm 35 now. I used to grow squash trellised in raised beds, and once they hit the main part of the stem in early July, it was over. I did the same thing as you in terms of switching to Cuberta Moshata. I grow Trombuccino squash and Long Island cheese pumpkins, and it worked for years. It still does. But I miss my jack-o'-lanterns. Best tip I can give you if you want to keep growing Cuberta Pipo and Maxima. Okay, Pipo and Maxima are your more popular squashes. They're your zucchinis and your regular pumpkins and stuff, just so you know. Uh, is to grow them in a big sprawling patch on the ground. What I have found worked for me in the last few years is let the vines sprawl everywhere and bury each node in the dirt, which forms new roots. So there are multiple failure point redundancies along the stem. Therefore, if the cunty little bugs hollow out a portion of your stem and you have been able to root along the length of the stem, your vines can outgrow the little effers. I have three Atlantic giant pumpkins on my vine at the moment, whereas in the past I'd have a pile of dead cucumbers by now. Sorry for the essay. Love you, brother. Thanks for what you do. Best, Gordon. That works. Why doesn't it work for me? <laughs> I don't have a big place to grow sprawling anything. I have raised beds because my ground is four inches of soil on top of rock. This does work. I do it, and I don't just do it with Maxima and Pipo cucumbers. I do it with my um, my squash um, as well, like my Trumbachinos and my if I was using long line cheese, but my I do Trumbachino and I do Seminole pumpkin. Both of those are uh, Cucuberto Machanta species. They have a very dense 
uh, vine. Uh, butternut is also a species that's in that same realm. It has that dense vine. Butternut tend to have such a dense, thin stalk, they just don't go in there. I don't know why, but things like Trombuccino, Long Island cheese, a few other squashes in the, the Moshada family, they get in there, they do damage, but the Dagon vines just like kind of grow back as fast as they, they, chew, they chew on them. However, it does hurt them. And so when I have any vine anywhere where it's touching the ground and it's already starting to fruit on past that point, I do exactly what, what he said. I dig up the ground for about six to eight inches, pull the mulch back, and dig a trench. And I lay the vine down in the trench. I throw some organic fertilizer like Dr. Earth on there. I put the dirt back on, put the mulch back on, and then since all my stuff's near my ponds, I grab a huge pile of floating aquatic vegetation, water lettuce or water hyacinth or something like that, and I pile it on top of there to give it a redundancy of water and keeping the soil cool until the roots form. And this absolutely does work and make things better. So I do it, but I say it doesn't work for me. The reason it doesn't work for me is I don't have a big sprawling place to do like a pumpkin patch or something. If you do, this works. And it's a good case for growing, even when you're growing more susceptible squashes, vining squashes versus bush squashes. Because if you have those vines, you can do this. And squash vines will root wherever you put them in soil contact and keep them moist. And it does. It creates more of a network where if you have one vine, and that vine's, you know, some of these vines are 18 feet long. You got an 18 foot long vine, and a vine bore goes in right where the squash vine enters the ground, hollows it out, and 18 foot dies. So it's good advice from Gordon. I completely agree with it. Marty asked me, can you break down what you've learned in your crack key hydro system in one episode for us and how you would do it knowing everything you do now? And he gives me some details. It's a good idea for an episode, Marty. It really is. I'll probably do something like a year of hydroponics, like I said, covering crack key and other solutions at the end of the year. But I wanted to go ahead and acknowledge this question and give like a, a mile high overview of it today. So basically, this is my takeaway from crack key. And for those that don't remember, crack key is where you have no pumps. You have some sort of container, then you suspend your plants with net cups or something above them. Your water comes almost to the top, so the plants are in the water. The little peat pellet, whatever, is in the water, and it starts to grow. And then the plant, through transpiration and evaporation, because some of the water can get out, the water level in the container begins to drop. As the water level begins to drop, the roots chase it down, and you get this incredible, beautiful hair root structure that takes moisture out of the air from the humidity inside the container, and yet you still have roots down in the water getting pure nutrient. And up to a point, you can just let stuff grow. And because you have that air gap, you don't get in an anaerobic state. You, you, the plant can still get lots of oxygen, so we don't need to move the water with pump or ebb and flow or something like that. My basic viewpoint of Kratky is it's a great technology. Yes, you can grow peppers and tomatoes and cucumbers and shit like that. If you're going to do that, you have to have some sort of float valve situation. You have to have some way that... I'm going to let the fluid level come to this point, and to hither thou shalt drop and no further. Because you can't just keep dumping water in. 
because the hair root structure that exists above the water, if you submerse it, it will die. Once it forms in that hair root structure, it cannot be underwater. So you have two different root types in a Kratky system. You have the underwater roots and the above water roots. And the above water roots form off of the underwater roots after the water goes below that level. And the underwater roots can handle being exposed up to a point. There's supposed to be some water and nutrient there for them, but they can handle it. They can go that way, but it can't go the other way. The additional thing with crack key that makes it a little bit complex, even though it's the most simple in, in theory, is there is a point where you're done growing and the fluid needs to go away and be replaced, or you're not done growing, it's a long-term crop, and the fluid really needs to be changed out. And that is problematic in a home-based system. So my little seed starting thing works beautifully, but when you're done, you have this pan full of fluid, it's kind of fumbly, and you got to pull it out of there, and you got to get rid of it, and... If it had a drain point, you'd be much better off. Now, larger systems like an outside greenhouse-based system or something like that, you just put some sort of you know bulkhead or something in the bottom of your, your, your reservoirs and you drain them. In an indoor system, as soon as you start doing that, you're almost better off putting a pump in the system because you can run any kind of an indoor-scale system on a little bitty pump that uses like you know 13 watts of power. Like, you, you, your, your computer screen uses more power than that pump. And that pump solves so many problems that the only thing I see doing with crack key indoors is, like, my indoor start, seed starting system because it works so good. And by the time the plants are ready to come out and go, there's not that much fluid left. But you've got to be really careful in that because you can all of a sudden, like, there's fluid in there today and I forgot about it for two days and, oh, shit, all the plants died. Or they're really, really sick, right? Um, and you still have to deal with dumping the reserve. Where if you have a pump, you can just drain into your reservoir and pump out of your reservoir into a bucket and dump that and replace. See, it's just easier. So I think crack key works best in like the jar. If you're doing, you know, growing in mason jars and stuff like that, and you want to grow 20, 30 lettuce plants, 20, 30 mason jars, go ahead. And indoor Kratky is all about greens. And I think indoor hydro is all about greens. I'm not growing tomatoes and peppers and squash indoors with hydro. Just not doing it. Outdoor Kratky can be anything, but you need to be thinking mostly about what to do at the end of the cycle and how to maintain a, bot, a, a, a limited bottom level. Those are the, my big takeaways from Kratky. In the end, I find most pump-based hydroponics superior enough to justify a pump. And I think we should all remember what Dr. Kratke came up with the solution for was doing hydroponics where the power was not available. It was not developed because it was superior from a production standpoint. It was developed because it could be done where there was no power. Next up... Uh, A, uh, this is the first initial because I don't get a full name and I don't get people's last names, even though this one would be so generic that no one would know. A says, do you have any info on pressed felt grow bags, specific longevity of the bags, or any issues they might have? I have pocket grow for hell, and I'm looking at laying down pavers in a 4x4 and placing grow bags on top to garden with. 
It looks less expensive for a large gardening area than doing tubs or trying to gopher-proof everything. And if they last a year or more, I think they'd be worth it. Here's a link below, and it's an Amazon link. Okay. I don't know anything firsthand about grow bags, so I'm really hesitant to crap on something that I haven't personally done. So I won't fully crap on them, but I will tell you my issues and my concerns with grow bags. I have found claims of longevity being anywhere from one to ten years and what seems to be the most legitimate with felt bags, and often felt bags are not actually felt. They're actually microplastics, which makes them last longer. So it's like microplastic felt. So you want to see what the actual material makeup is of whatever bags you're going to buy and how thick they are. It's somewhere in between three and five years that you can get under the best conditions. You know, if you are in the desert with blazing, long, hot, UV-irradiating days, you're going to have a quicker breakdown in fabric and how you take care of them and what have you. But at best, I think you should bet on about three years. Okay. My next issue here with that concept in mind is when it comes to gardening on any scale and you're doing it in a container of any kind, whether it's a big tub, whether it's five-gallon buckets with a grain gutter grow system, whether it's this type of thing, no matter what it is, inevitably what will cost you the most money is the dirt, the soil mix, the filler. It's amazing how much it takes to fill a significant number of these things. So, to me... Having that in a felt bag and then having that fall apart doesn't seem like a good way to steward the investment in the material. So I would be looking more towards some sort of a permanent or semi-permanent solution. Okay, so I would personally move right towards some sort of tubs or system or something like that. And I would point out that something like a kiddie pool is cheap, large, deep, and if you you know if you get the big ones, it's a significant amount of material to work with. And because it's you know let's just say you took the same amount of material in grow bags. Now they're each in their own little compartment, and they're much harder to keep hydrated. For all the talk about airflow through grow bags and things like that, um, they, they dry out really quick. So what people inevitably end up doing is taking shallow things like small kiddie pools and, and concrete tubs and things like that and sitting them and watering them from the bottom. And if you do too much of that, then you get root rot, even though you've got good airflow. Like I know some of you use them, and you get good results, To me, I would rather spend the money with some sort of watertight container-based system and build a wicking bed that will self-maintain and I can just keep building soil. As that soil level drops, I can just keep adding material and adding material and adding material. Because all of the people that do successful grow, uh, grow bag growing, they all have this one-third, one-third, one-third mix they use. It's like one-third compost, one-third peat moss, one-third vermiculite. I don't know, and maybe somebody's doing it, but I don't know people that are like actively composting inside these bags or anything. And to me, like when you are doing gardening the right way, as you garden, you're building soil. I can do that with container gardening. I, I don't really see that working out really well in a grow bag situation. So I don't recommend it. 
But anything that gets you growing is worth doing. And they're not that expensive. So I would say don't go all in right away. Give it a shot. Try some different methods and figure out the one that works best for you. It's just my thoughts on it. I'm sure I'll hear from somebody about how great it is, and they'll send me this amazing video with all the grow bags, and I'll have to be like, well, it works for him, and maybe you should do what he's doing. But even the videos I've seen so far that show success, I, I look at it and I go, I wonder if this person would have an operation growing this much if it wasn't for their YouTube channel. It just seems like the channel's... Revenue is what's making it feasible to do things at the scale that they're doing. So if you want to grow a little bit, and a 4x4 four, four is not that big of a space, you can probably do anything you want. You know, But if that's going to be like my first one and my plan is to actually expand and have multiples of this, I, I would really look like, you know, here's, here's an example of, of what I'm saying here. A lot of times, if you look with a little bit of extra effort, you can find IBCs, Right for about thirty bucks. If you cut one in half, you got fifteen dollars a bed. You've got watertight, food grade plastic. You can build a wicking bed in. Now you've got two four by four beds. To me, that is way superior to grow bags. And I know some people are like, well, they're not really attractive. If you if you went out and like scavenged like old pallets or fence wood or something and built a little facade around them for almost no money using savage materials, you can make them look really cool. And you get so much out of a wicking bed. And if you plumb a float valve to your wicking bed system, you can leave for a week and you can come home and you have more food. And that will never happen with grow bags unless you end up plumbing a system that waters from the bottom, which might, you might as well have done a wicking bed at that point. That's that's my thing. It's like, yes, they work, but there's so many things that work better. Just my thoughts. A, uh, a little input here from uh, Dr. John, who has been a member of this community for a very, very long time, about COVID. He said, I know COVID discusses all the rage today, but here's a different twist. I'm not all that concerned about getting COVID myself, especially with recent changes to reporting of the fatality results. By the way, this man's a doctor, just in case you missed it. But any illness at all can affect my financial situation. I'm a healthcare worker, and the CDC recommend recommendations have been since July. If one has any flu-like symptoms, they should quarantine for 10 days and be symptom-free before returning to work. No COVID test required. Heck, even if you test COVID negative, even two days in a row, you still can't be at work, according to these guidelines. My staff and I have our temperatures taken daily, and my staff and I have all signed agreements to not come to work and quarantine if sick. I've never had a sick day in 17 years, but many days, wearing proper PPE, of course, I've worked when I know I would wouldn't pass the test of the COVID error. In other words, what he's saying, just to be clear there, is last year... I was doing nothing wrong, according to guidelines. This year, because COVID, even though I don't have COVID, I'm doing something wrong. Okay. As the business owner, only so much can be done if I were quarantined, and then there were rolling quarantines of my small staff. The financial outcome could be devastating and a perfect storm to take down my business, at the very least cause dramatic difficulties and going back into debt to keep my business afloat. 
Just a thought I'd point out, even if the COVID fears are calming down, some of us still have plenty to be afraid of, even the calm and cold. Thanks for all your insights. As always, I'm MSB and a listener since 2008. John, uh, yeah, I... I also kind of look at that as being something that long after we should all just forget about this, that government and industry is addicted to this now. They See, I don't think that anybody really knew how weak-ass the American people had become. And now that they know that they can scare you so easily, they don't want to let go of this. And I think that, like, right now, Texas, Governor Abbott should grow a pair And open the state back up. It is September the 14th, and we are exactly where I said Texas would be by September 13th in my projections. I mean, to the number, the COVID curve did exactly what I said it would do, and I put that information out on July 22nd. It's in print on Facebook where I went through all of these graphs of all of these other countries and said, this is how it compares to Texas. Here's a double shoulders formation in the COVID data. This is what it looked like everywhere else. This is the top. Eight weeks later, we'll still have COVID around, but it will be so beat, it will be impossible to deny that it's done. That it's on the de- it's like just falling like a brick and it's over. And it ain't coming back. But here we sit in one of the states that's done a, 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 a better job in not overreacting. And I keep hearing these idiots on TV talk about, well, Texas should be doing what New York did. New York is protecting lives, and Texas did. And do you want to compare who did better? Do you want to look at deaths per 100,000 New York? Do you really? Do you really? Texas is Trump country, and those people are inherently anti-mask, and they're putting people's lives at risk. And, but, okay, we had a death of something like one, one in what, 400 per 100,000 or something like that. And New York, who's supposedly doing rise, is like 1,800 per 100,000. You're four and a half times worse, and you want to brag? This is nonsense. But, yeah, and what it makes me think of when, when I was reading that from, from Dr. John was California's rolling blackouts and how hard it is for businesses to plan cycles when they don't know when they're going to be shut down. And it would probably be the case that as, as bad as it was, if John knew this year, from these 10 days, you're not going to be able to run your business. And you have to plan in advance for these specific 10 days to not be there. And you know, you're, talking about a, you're not talking about a multi-doctor practice. right? You're talking about a doctor and a staff. So... I can't, and then, you know, we're supposed, well, he had exposure to his other staff, so they should, you you see how it all goes. But as bad as that would be, like, you could totally plan for that. You could totally plan for that. But to not know it's going to happen until it happens. And that's the essence of survival planning. And I'm not going to pretend that it's easy to do with a business. But it's how a lot of businesses need to start thinking. How can we be ready for a 10-day shutdown out of the blue as though we had planned for it three months in advance. And I don't have an answer today, and that's way too deep to get into today, but maybe we'll come back to it again. Um, I'm going to tease this one a little bit. John Pugliano is going to answer this because it came in for him. I think he'll have an answer for us Friday. But uh, Ken says, summary, Earth will get significantly colder over the next 33 years. Starting this year, there will be reduced growing seasons and crop failures because of this. Details of different reason to prep. 
looks like you may be well positioned for this in Texas. Maybe you could reach out to your audience for someone to explain what is being predicted here. John Pugliano may be a candidate because of his ham radio background. Uh, Valentina Zarkara is well known to lots of hands because of her previous sunspot predictions. And basically, this prediction, and I have a link to this story that he mentions, is that we are going into a grand solar minimum. I mean, basically, we're in cycle 24's solar minimum. And it's the lowest cycle in something like 200 years. Pugliano has responded already, saying he'll get me an answer, but maybe it's not even a coincidence to say the spread of COVID might be related to less UV light exposure and lower vitamin D levels. I think we already had, w without that, a vitamin D, um, ep you know, a, a low vitamin D epidemic in America and most of the Western world, by the way. Um, but I think one of the things that people don't understand about this solar minimum is this, the, the solar cycle runs in 11-year cycles, but it runs in grand cycles as well. And you'll say, well, this is the minimum of this 11-year cycle. Yeah, but during some of these minimums, like one of the most famous recent ones would be the Munder minimum, is in that 11-year cycle, you're at the, it's at the beginning of it being the lowest level. It doesn't really go up during those 11 years. It's another end of the cycle. And that can run in grand cycles for three 11-year cycles or 33 years. And that's what's being said right now. Now, this is what's interesting about this. This is not something that like, oh, gee, we just discovered this. People have been saying this for a long time. I have an episode from 2009 about global cooling stating that it would most likely begin around 2020. Again, this is from 2009. This is me. And it wasn't because I'm a genius. It's because these cycles are predictable. They're incredibly predictable. Now, here's what I find interesting. There's a new word being used heavily by climate change alarmists in the media, and that word is cooling. Go search for global cooling in Google News. And you might find a few hit pieces about how it's fake and not real, but mostly what you'll see, and if you had done it, Two years ago, a year ago, six months ago, that's all you would have found. What you'll find now is a whole litany of articles discussing how we can cause global cooling through climate action as though it's a good thing. I'm not going to give you any examples. Go, go do some of your own research for change, or trust me. I've never lied to you about stuff like this. There's a whole litany of articles that say basically this, this benevolent idea of it's time to usher in an era of global cooling through all of our climate change Green New Deal shit. Well, one thing I've noticed about political powers is they start claiming to be the ones that are going to make something happen when they already know that that thing is inevitable. So... What I heard from CDC, WHO, etc. was eight weeks ago, if everybody will wear masks in America, we can bring COVID under control within eight weeks. And I said that's because COVID will be under control within eight weeks because that's the curve. That's just the way this is going to They already know that, so they're putting that out ahead of it. Back when Mitt Romney was running for president, he started talking about what? North American energy independence. 
and we were going to go to that. Well, that's because we had already set a course that was already going to happen. And, and, and Trump's trumpeting, right, American energy independence. But that was the next step. We were already North American energy independent when Trump took office. Now, Romney didn't win, but it happened anyway under Obama, who wasn't exactly, you know, favorable to the fossil fuel industry. Why? Because it was already going to happen. This is a pattern to recognize. When the powers that be start saying, we're going to work to make this thing happen, and they start using specific buzzwords, and it starts to show up everywhere, there's a good chance, not always, but there's a good chance if you look at supporting data and you see it, it's probably true, that that thing is inevitable. So what they want to do is they're setting the stage for global cooling so that regardless of how much or how little of their agenda they get done, they're already on record saying global cooling's coming because we're doing the right things. And then they can claim credit for it and claim we need to keep doing it because if we don't, it'll come back. Does that sound like COVID to you? Hello? Is this thing on? Hello? Does that sound like COVID? They already knew what it was going to do. They claimed that what they were doing was going to make it go down. But now we have to keep doing it or it'll come back. Does that sound like hello? Sorry to do that to you guys. I don't do that often. But really. I mean, that's how I feel sometimes. Like, hello, is anybody listening? Does anybody understand this? This can't be only me. That's what's going on. Anyway, John Pugliano will give his thoughts on that as a ham radio guy and from some other standpoints, maybe financial uh, coming this Friday. With that, we have wrapped things up again. want to remind you there's a couple ways you can support this show. One is do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z. Tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com before you buy stuff online, you will support us no matter what you eventually buy. And you'll see all the things that I recommend. And you'll know if it's something I recommend, it's something I've probably spent my own money on and I would buy again or I wouldn't recommend it because that's just the way I do things around here. Today's item of the day is the 1.7 liter electric kettle by Macaro. And I'm telling you, I know you're like, why is a survival guy telling me about an electric freaking kettle like he's Alton Brown? First of all, what's wrong with Alton Brown? Alton Brown is awesome. Second of all, cooking is a survival skill. If you don't eat, you starve. Tell you what, you know who always was well taken care of in the military? The cooks, right? And they didn't even cook that good when you can cook really good. It's great. But this is a tool that makes cold water into hot water really, really fast. There's a lot of reasons I can think to have that around, but just in your kitchen and your cooking, it's one of the most versatile tools you'll ever use. I've recommended the one by Hamilton Beach for years. I just bought this one this year, and I started recommending it instead. It is a great tool. It has settings from, I believe, 130 degrees on the low end, somewhere down around that range, up to 212 in five-degree increments in between, which means if you want to make a specific tea, and it's an herbal tea that's going to do really, really well uh, at, let's say, 190 degrees, you can set your kettle to 190 degrees. It will bring it to exactly 190 degrees, and you can even say, hold it there for me, and if you forget about it because you're out watering the grass or taking care of the ducks or something like I do all the time, and when you come back, it will be within a few degrees of there, and it will constantly keep bringing it back to that number, almost like a little portable sous vide machine. Pretty awesome. You can cook eggs with it. If you are a mead maker, you can set the temperature of your water to exactly the temperature you want to blend your honey in. 
when you're making your small batch mead. So you don't have to boil it. You don't have to guess at what the temperature of the water is. If you want to do your mead mixing with 160-degree water, set it to 160 degrees. Electric kettles in general, if you're going to boil a big, giant pot of water to do something, and it's going to take a long time to move that water up to temperature, boil a kettle of water and dump it into that pot and accelerate the process. There's just so many things you can do with an electric kettle. Making eggs. There's, you can just throw eggs in an electric kettle, turn it on, let it kick off, and wait four minutes and drain it, and you have perfectly cooked eggs. But in this case, if you want to soft boil an egg, you can set the kettle to the temperature you want to bring to the egg to, like a sous vide machine. Last time I talked about this thing, people said, well, you know, you could do that with a sous vide machine. Yes, I know that, but I have to get the sous vide machine out. My electric kettle is always out and always on top of my countertop because I make coffee with it every day. Oh, it makes great coffee, and the best temperature to make your French press coffee, whether it be Mai Tai or Holler Roast or Food Forest Farms Coffee or any other brand, is not 212 degrees. It's 200 degrees. Try it. Try it and you will see. You know what's cool to do? Make one batch at 212 and make one at 200 and see the difference for yourself. And there's a whole level of different temperatures for different things and you have access to it all. And the dadgone thing just works really great. Check it out today. Again, it's made by a company called Morocco, M-I-R-O-C-O. I think is how you'd say Morocco. And it's just badass. It's got great reviews. It's a little more expensive than a Hamilton Beach, but it's a hell of a lot better. It's time for a technology upgrade. If you have the old one I used to recommend, you're about ready for an upgrade. Here's the cool thing. The bases are the same. When I got this new one, it, I, I went ahead and got rid of the base to the old one because it was old. But it was nice to see the thing that worked great. It's still the same in the industry. So, uh, Anyway, with that, the other way you can help us out is by becoming a member of the MSB or a Members Support Brigade. If you want to become a member of the MSB, go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. You can sign up there. You'll get a lot of really great stuff. You'll get content you can't get anywhere else. you get every episode of TSP ever made, all 2,700 plus, uh, in convenient zip files that you can download onto your hard drive. Um, you get discounts is the big thing. And if you use those discounts, your membership will more than pay for itself. So it makes a lot of sense to support us and get your money back. It's like you get to support me, and I get to give you your money back, and we both get to keep the money. Isn't that cool? And the vendors get to get business they wouldn't otherwise have. That's called incremental uh, revenue, and that's like the lifeblood of a business. Win, win, win. That's what the MSB is all about. Please consider becoming a member today. And that brings us to our song of the day. I, I heard from John Adams. He's like, uh, hey, man. John Adams is the guy that's been doing our music now for over two years. Hey, man, um, do, you, do, you, do you need me anymore? Are you pushing me? Are you, are, you, are you sending me out to pasture or something here? Like, you've been doing all your own music and, like, you know, you didn't tell me. Yeah, I just, I got a hair up my butt, and I want to do some of my own music for a while. I'm going to go back to using John's lists um, of music uh, probably next week. But I wanted to do like a week of music, and I started it on Monday, so we'll do six days of music, of songs that make me think of things in my past that actually have a, a meaningful thing to me. Because I think that's one thing that music does for us is it finds those common bonds. I talked about how that works with 9-11 on Friday, that we all have a common bond if we were old enough to remember 9-11 because we all know where we were and how we felt. And we all felt dramatically the same. But most music, it doesn't do that. But there's a lot of songs that are very universal and make us all think of something, and then we can find some level of commonality. I think today's song is one of those, especially for guys. Uh, I'm sure women can relate too, but I don't know if... You know, there's a reason brotherhood is brotherhood and sisterhood is sisterhood. And there's a dynamic with guys as friends that's, that's, that's unique to us. I'm not saying it's better. 
It's just unique. It's different. And it's okay that things are different. This song's by Bon Jovi. It's called Blood on Blood. And what this song is about is three guys growing up together as great friends, eventually drifting apart, and yet always being willing to go back and be there for each other. But there's there's some interesting dynamics, and this makes me think of two different phases of this type of brotherhood in my past. And it also makes me think of kind of the timing in a man's life that he has this kind of friendship. As strong as these friendships are, they tend to be situational rather than chosen. You end up with really strong bonds because you were somewhere with somebody, college, military service, high school. And if you had not been in that place together, even if you had known each other, you may not have formed that bond. And then as we mature, we reach a second phase in our life where we begin to say, hey, it's time to think about my future and build a family and build something really substantial. And a lot of times that's when those friendships, even if they're brotherhoods, by circumstance, tend to get pushed to the side or just into the past, and you, and you all go your own way. And then relationships tend to be built on choosing instead of situation. Where you end up, yeah, you work with people, but I, when I'm done work, you, unless there's a compelling reason for me to be friends with these people, I'm out the door and goodbye. You know, when you're 22, you're a lot more likely to form friendships in the workplace, go hang out in bars with guys and stuff like that, than when you're 28 or 32 or 34. Because now I'm going home to my wife and to my kids. So then when you have relationships beyond the family unit, they tend to be more chosen. But if we go back to those first relationships, there's a part of this song that I think speaks to a truism that we we tend to forget in ourselves And that is that a lot of people that kind of seem like screw-ups when they're kids, they grow up to be pretty awesome people. And a lot of times we hear about somebody from our past and like, you know, they're a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, some media personality, something highly influential and successful. And we're like, really, him? And we like, hey, have you ever thought, dummy, really you? Like, I'm telling you right now, there are teachers I had in high school, if you told them that Jack Spear would be influencing the minds positively of 250,000 people a day in America, when I was freaking 17 years old, they would have went, oh, okay, sure. And some of my friends from that time period, and some of my friends from my military time period, and the things that they've done and become are pretty amazing, too. And that's summed up in this song kind of when he's talking about things like getting busted for stealing cigarettes and then the, the white trash girl line and turned us into men. And I think back to, like, my friends from that time. That's not the stuff we did. Right? We did some crazy, stupid shit, though. And I don't think those things in that song are supposed to be literal interpretations of, like, that's the exact thing, stealing cigarettes or whatever. It's just, like, basically, this is how screwed up we were. This is how screwed up we were. But through that screw up, screwed up nature, we became brothers, not just friends. And yet somehow we tend to rise above that screwed up childhood nonsense. And for men, you know, it's we, we go from being a boy to being a man. The, the line in here about turned them into men, that's not what made them men. Growing the hell up and seeing to their needs. And seeing the needs of those around them. And doing something great with their lives. 
And that's kind of in the stands. He says, now Bobby, he's an uptown lawyer. Danny, he's a medicine man. Well, it's a doctor. You got a doctor and a lawyer out of this. And me, I'm just the singer in a long-haired rock and roll band. The guy, I mean, he's a megastar at the time that this song came out on Bon Jovi. Through the years and miles between us, it's been a long and lonely ride. But if I got that call in the dead of the night, I'd be right by your side. Blood on blood. And I think that the way you know, because I think a lot of times men, we kind of romanticize this idea of brotherhood. You know, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but we kind of elevate it to a status. You know, anytime, anywhere, any place. I don't think you know if that's true until you get to the point where the years and the miles lie between you. Because I can tell you, there's people from my past that if I got that call in the dead of the night, immediately, without question, I'm there. And there's others, not so much. Not so much. There's that real brotherhood. And it's not bound by blood, either through birth or through cutting of hands. It's bound by something at a higher level. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast.